This is your pal Bruce Suji again, talking to you today about managing your mental health. We know that school transitions, that is, when we shift to a new school, such as moving from elementary to secondary school, or from secondary school to university, is often associated with a big drop in self-esteem. This, in turn, is accompanied by loneliness, depression, and anxiety. So if you're feeling a little fragile right now as you enter university, you are absolutely not alone. Let's break that down a little. You're in a new environment, probably away from your closest friends and family. You probably don't really know what to expect or what is expected of you. You probably have what feels like a lot more schoolwork than you may be accustomed to, and you probably have fewer supports and fewer constraints to make you do your work. It's quite likely you aren't eating as well. You may not be exercising as much. The quality of your sleep has deteriorated, and you're probably exposed to more ideas and people and sights and sounds and germs than you ever have before. It's not surprising, then, that many people find that their stress levels go through the roof in their first year of university. Today's podcast is about acknowledging that fact, that fact that you're stressed out, and giving you a few tips to help you cope and manage your physical and mental health. First thing I want to talk about is procrastination. One of the consequences of stress is that when we're feeling it, we tend to put off some of the things we know we should be doing. Things like studying for a midterm or doing research for an essay. Unfortunately, this procrastination usually just adds to the level of stress that we feel. It's a kind of a, a, a vicious cycle. One of the best ways I know of overcoming procrastination in your schoolwork is by using a technique called personal projects analysis, first put forth by a guy named Dr. Brian Little, formerly of Carleton University, Harvard University, and Cambridge. Dr. Little basically suggests that we use the same project management techniques that are used in business and big projects like building skyscrapers or sending people to Mars he suggests we do the following. Number one, write things down. Don't just make a note of it in your mind. Write it down. Two, write down what will help and what will hinder your progress towards completing your project. Number three, identify the sub-goals, the things you need to do in order to complete your project. For example, if we're talking about writing a term paper, one sub-goal is probably looking up references for your topic. And number four, track your progress, at least every week. If you're honest with yourself, some weeks you'll make a note of no progress whatsoever. In other weeks, 
you'll manage to achieve one or more of the sub-goals in your project. These steps might seem like overkill, but if you want to overcome procrastination for your schoolwork, then give it a try. They rely on a concept that we sometimes call extended cognition, or the idea that we sometimes need tools to extend our thinking capability in the same way that a sticky note sometimes helps us remember things, or the same way that a calculator might help us add a set of numbers. Brian Little's technique essentially uses concepts from the gig economy to help us accomplish things. Just like Uber helps us get places without having to buy a car, these steps can lend a helping hand to assist us in doing things related to school or other parts of our life. I strongly recommend you give Brian Little's personal projects a try. And if you'd like some more info, then do a Google search on personal projects or look it up in TED.com. You know TED Talks? Well, Brian Little has uh, also got a TED Talk about some of these ideas. A second concept I want to talk about is mindfulness. You've probably heard of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness meditation. If you do it, great. Then ignore this section. However, if you don't, and if you're feeling stressed right now, then pay a little bit of attention. You can reduce your stress and reduce your feelings of being overwhelmed by spending about 15 minutes of your day stifling or quieting or muting the chatter in your mind. By chatter, I'm referring to the play-by-play running commentary that most of us have going on most of our waking lives. They're varying estimates, but generally we seem to have between 1,000 and 3,000 thoughts per hour. We're not talking here about deep or really profound thoughts here, just the nearly random things that pass through our minds that some people call our monkey brain. It's a little bit like restless leg syndrome. Do you know what restless leg syndrome is? You've probably seen it around uh, where people will sit and their legs will be going like crazy. It's called restless leg syndrome. But in this case, we're talking about something happening in our brains. The point is that we benefit from slowing this flow from time to time. That's what mindfulness meditation attempts to do. And while you can find many different ways to practice mindfulness, one of the simplest and most straightforward is called the relaxation response, a technique first put forward by a guy named Herbert Benson in the late 1980s. You can duplicate his technique by just following these steps. First of all, find a quiet place and sit comfortably. Number two, close your eyes. Number three, try to relax all the muscles in your body deeply. Begin with your feet and gradually move upward from your feet to your ankles, to your knees, to your thighs, to your abdomen, to your chest, to your legs, sorry, to your arms, your neck, and finally the top of your head. Number four, concentrate on your breathing. 
in and out through your nose. When you breathe out, silently say one to yourself. Repeat this for about 15 minutes. When you're done, stay seated and then come back slowly over about one or two minutes. The evidence is clear that if you adopt this practice once a day, you will find your levels of stress and feelings of anxiety diminish. Please give it a try. The next thing I want to talk about is eating and exercise and nature. In my own lectures, I usually provide a simple, inexpensive recipe at the end of each class. I do this in part because the vast majority of people don't eat well, in part because we find it easier to order in or to eat out in restaurants or to eat prepared foods. Although I'm not a nutrition expert, I know that there is plentiful evidence to make the point that we would be physically and psychologically healthier if we ate better. In 2017, for example, approximately 64% of Canadians 18 and over were either overweight or obese. So clearly, many of us are not eating well. And in case you weren't aware of it, what has become known as the freshman 15, that is the tendency of students in their first year of university to gain about 15 pounds, is a very common phenomenon that occurs because people eat when they're stressed and or they make poor eating choices when they are stressed, that is. This podcast is not particularly about diet, but in general, if you can eat less fat, eat less carbohydrates, fewer prepared or takeout foods, and more vegetables, you'll be doing yourself a favor. If you know that you are doing good for yourself, that will have the effect of making you feel a little bit better about yourself and should help take your stress levels down just a notch. Of course, you know that the other half of the equation is exercise, right? Of course, you know that diet and exercise are essential to your physical health. It turns out that they're also important to you from a psychological perspective as well. For many people, regular physical exercise helps to reduce stress, helps to relieve feelings of anxiety and worry, and also improves your immune system to make you more resistant to things like the flu, colds, and other infectious diseases. While you're probably aware of the way that diet and exercise can help you, the importance of nature might be a little bit of news. Our psychological well-being is improved by sessions in nature. This might be as simple as a walk in the park, sitting on a riverbank, or watching the stars on a cold winter's night. Maybe it's because the typical student is a largely urban creature, or maybe it's because our focus on technology, but we seem to derive benefit from regular exposure to nature. If you can incorporate a dose of nature in your daily routine, you'll feel better. Try it. Another aspect of our own behavior that seems to be correlated with stress and anxiety is sleep. 
university students are notoriously bad sleepers. Unfortunately, inadequate sleep is very common among students, and your overall health, your level of stress, and your grades will all improve if you get better sleep. Do you believe me? Try Google. Type sleep hygiene in Google. Hygiene is spelled H-Y-G-I-E-N-E. And when you get back the results, see, take one of the tests that you'll find in that Google search. The ones provided by sleepfoundation.org, or the ones provided by WebMD, or the ones provided by Psychology Today are all good, but there are many out there. You may be surprised at how poor your sleep rates, and if so, you'll be doing yourself a huge favor if you take the steps to get eight hours sleep per day and improve the overall quality of your sleep. Believe me. Another aspect that is going to help your feelings of mental well-being has to do with routines. If you're really, really good at something, in other words, uh, imagine that you're an internationally ranked athlete or a popular musician or dancer or artist or a champion video gamer or anything where you're really at the top of your field, then you probably have some appreciation for the hours of practice and devotion it takes to be that way, to be the best. In order to get there, you probably had to set up a strict schedule to make sure that your practice happened on a regular basis and enabled you to spend the time required to get you to where you wanted to be. You might also appreciate that the majority of your practice time was spent doing your thing incorrectly, and then only after substantial practice did you get it right. Well, being a top-performing student at university is more or less the same. You need to get a routine and follow it. If your goal is to be a mediocre student, then you'll still benefit from a schedule, but you may fall off the schedule a little bit more than the person who's at the top of your class. It's difficult to give a recommendation that will work for everyone, but you will have to use a schedule in some kind, of some kind to make sure it reflects all of your class meeting times, all of the assignments and tests for each course, important social or leisure events, regular study times, and textbook readings. It's important that your schedule shows all your course assignments. Otherwise, you won't be able to see when different courses make demands that fall on the same day, which perversely, university courses seem to want to do. Your schedule might be a paper day timer or an app on your phone or your computer or the calendar function in Outlook or Google or something on your smartwatch. Do some homework to find the solution that works best for you and then use it. No scheduler will help unless you use it daily and update it as new assignments come and go and include your vacation and leisure time too. Otherwise, you might be surprised by the assignment that is graded zero while you were away or the big essay that's due the day after a long-awaited get-together with friends. Many, if not most of your courses, will have weekly readings. Others will ask you to read along in the appropriate textbook chapters week by week. Check the course syllabus for each course. You will not complete these readings unless you schedule them. And even if it feels really nerdy to start study sessions early in the semester, 
The point is, if you start a regular routine early, you're more likely to continuing, continue following it. As thinking human beings, we are absolutely capable of changing our habits. However, we often take quite a bit of time to do so. Learning how to put yourself on a schedule and make your school work part of your routine is not something that will happen overnight. In fact, the evidence suggests that on average it takes about 66 days for something to become a habit. That means it'll take about half the semester for your studying to become a regular habit. When it does, however, it will start to become, it's, that studying will start to come naturally and the benefits to your grades will also become apparent. The last thing I'd like to mention here is about thinking, feeling, and doing. One of the common sources of stress among university students is the idea that failing a particular course will totally screw up their lives. Objectively, that's just not true. If you can change your beliefs a little, you can dramatically change the stress that you feel. For example, if you can change your thinking to something like, I'll try my best, but if I fail, I can always retake the course, then the consequences on your stress levels may be a dramatic reduction. This idea of changing our beliefs is at the heart of something called rational emotive behavior therapy. If you're interested, look it up. A second related problem is that many university students think too much about the study and work that they must complete. This is often at the heart of the procrastination that many of us fall victim to. Instead of thinking about it, if we just started doing it, often the work gets done. Try this the next time you find yourself moaning over the chapter you need to read for your next class. Instead of thinking about it, just start reading it. Stop thinking about reading it. In many cases, you'll find you'll have completed the work, and when you complete the work, you'll feel less stress about it. Till next time, I'm Bruce Suji.